Today's reading is from John chapter 13, 1 through 35. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up. From the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, Then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand, so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today.
Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. This begins our section of scripture for today, that Jesus knows that this is the hour, that this is the time. Now, last week I said that um, what happens in John's gospel is we're into the final week. That's because we were right at the holy entry. But now we're on the last days. We're on the very um, last parts of this whole thing. It it moves fast into this moment. Um, What Jesus sees here is both referred to at the end, that this is the time of my glory, but also that this is the hour in which the whole gospel has awaited. Jesus is waiting to move into this spot and this space. What happens for the next um, 13 chapters is Jesus discusses with his disciples in the upper room and prays for them how they are to go into the world, how they are to be. And and interestingly enough, as Jesus is preparing to leave, that's the question that's asked at the end of this chapter, sort of is where are you going in the beginning of the next, is how is it the disciples are going to remain in touch with this one as he returns to the Father? It's where we'll get into the gift of the Spirit in that next scene, that that they're going to be able to remain in touch with Jesus because he'll be able to be more present. This is always a great challenge for me because you would think being with Jesus is the more presence. But John's gospel seems to think often that the more presence is his Spirit being able to indwell within you. And so this passage from Leslie Newbegender, this thing, um, he talks about this point. At this point, the gospel, we move out of the streets into the quiet room. The noise of the cosmos has died away. The stillness of night prevails. And yet in that quiet room, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the mission to the world on which he will send them. And the word cosmos occurs no less than 40 times in the five chapters which begin here. Most often in our translation, world. That Jesus is going to talk about the world. And as we went through John's gospel, it starts with that notion is that this is the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. Or in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the one that we know well. What seems to happen here is that the main metaphors that Jesus has used up until this point are that he is light and that he is life. That Jesus, in his mission during his time in which he is moving around in that way, is seeking out light in a world of darkness, that he's bringing life to a world of death. What's interesting is that in these next five chapters, until the end of the gospel, the notion of light and life begins to fade away. He's speaking to his own. His own in which he loved, is what it says. And so it's assumed these are the people whom which Jesus has reached and taken out of the age of darkness, taken out of the age of death, and now he's teaching them to live into that new place. And what happens with the world, um, which he's talking about here, is it becomes this place in which um, Jesus will teach and the disciples will teach. Again, this is why it's preserved in the gospel, that this is a world that God loves, that this is a world in which God aims to remove the sin, the stain that's upon it. And yet also, um, this is a world that rejects that which comes in this way. So much of the teaching about the world in in these next chapters after where we are today will have to do with what does it mean that the world is turned against this message. The church still goes forth to proclaim it, 
to teach it, to seek it out. It's why I'm here, not genetically linked all the way back to something like that. Um, That message still goes forth. And yet the world has this... um, If the world hated Jesus, the world will hate his disciples as well. I'm always talking about these notions we have of trying to one-up Jesus. Um, um, I'll be able to be the perfect Christian without the world hating me. Like, well, if the Lord and Savior who modeled himself could not do that. uh, There's another one, um, people who are like, tomorrow is the end times, which is sort of the mindset we're supposed to have. But they like literally mean, look, I've done all the digging in the scriptures and tomorrow is the end times. In a different gospel, Jesus says, even the son of man does not know the hour and the time. Again, trying to one-up Jesus. Look, he doesn't know but I do. Um, these are things that we should not be trying to do as, um, uh, and more importantly, that this is, I think, one that comes to us in the modern world. It's a bizarre side note for this sermon, um, but the, uh, since I got started on the one-upping Jesus, I, I need to finish, is the last one, which is that I can do this without suffering. So often, Christian believers, and it's preached and taught, that if you believe correctly, if you follow rightly, no suffering will come to you. And the challenge is, I think, even in my own preaching and teaching, is I'm aware that that's the way we try to one-up Jesus. It is um, implicit sometimes. Um, we don't explicitly say it in most churches, but it is a message that sort of implicitly comes because we try so hard for plead to people to get in on this kind of life, the with God life, the eternal life that John talks about. Sometimes we do so denying the reality that suffering comes with it. That we are to pick up our cross and follow him as well. Now we do not suffer to save the world. That's a big difference. But we don't one-up Jesus by saying, look, he did all this so that I don't have to go through any of that. As we follow him, we follow him to where he dies we follow him, then that means into the resurrection of new life as well. And that is the good news. Um, and so those are the three ways in which we try to, I think, one-up Jesus. But this moment at which his hour has come, um, he tells, or John preserves for us, this story in, that I think oftentimes we have in the gospel, the pictures of the gospel enacted out. What we have is Jesus setting this time aside to enact the whole story of what he is and called to do in the foot-washing scene. Now, this is different than the other last nights. Um, John places the last night before Jesus goes to the cross the day before Passover so that he can place Jesus' death at the time in which the Passover animals are being slaughtered. Jesus dies when the the animals are being slaughtered. That removed um, the mark of death from the Israelites' household. So too, Jesus, in his way, removes the mark of death from our household. That's John's theological perspective on why it's moved. Now, I spent way too much time reading about which one's right and and, and not, and this, that, and the other. Um, uh, Most commentators on John, funny enough, think John's right. Could you imagine? I spent four years writing a commentary on John just to say that he's wrong. (laughs) No, they all think that he's right. And the reason why they think he's right is because the movement in which takes place on on the days in which the Gospels have it, Good Friday, the Passover day, the day 
after the feast seems to suggest um, unlikeliness with the Jewish tradition. On a feast day, it wouldn't be that way. And so John, being the last written of the Gospels in some way, um, corrects that, that interpretation, bringing it back in line. So if you want to think about that for a long time, I've got books for you. I've got things you can read. If you're like me and you're like, it works, um, then, then moving on. Um, uh, this is where the um, book of glory starts, which we've talked about already, is that we have the prologue of the Gospel of John, which is another one of those pictures that contains the image of what the Gospel is going to be. In, those, in that language, it's light and life. It's the word becoming flesh. It's this, and even there, and this is where this scene, I think so many of the scenes in which the gospel is mirrored for us in a story or in an image or something like that, there is conflict there. In the original prologue, there is darkness. In John 13, this foot washing scene, there is Judas and there is Satan who enters into him. The gospel story doesn't tell us that the world is fine as it is. It says that there's an adversary. It says that there's darkness. It says that there are things. And even in the moments you would think like Jesus is here with his intimate circle should be preserved for us as a way of being like, let's, let's just pretend like everything's fine. Still at that supper, there is betrayal. And there is darkness. Um, the book of signs, which took up chapters 2 through 12, predominantly made up of seven signs, from starting with the uh, miracle at Cana, um, wine for everyone, and ending with Lazarus, uh, the conquering of the grave, life for everyone, that, that he is going to conquer death in that way. And there's signs that make up the difference, seven of them. Um, but Again, this next passage, which is really a week, and then it goes quickly to one day and, and three days to the end of the gospel, um, becomes uh, no more miracles. No more um, uh, moving about and healing people and causing crowds. The camera shrinks into the scene of him being with the ones whom he loved, of being with his disciples of being with those who were nearest to him. And this is a challenge for us. The, the one thing I wanted to say about the end, I want to really just walk through the foot washing sermon today, which has the foot washing story sermon. It's got sort of these two parts, but one is it has the intro to the passion, verses one through, yeah, verses just one. Um, verse two, um, which is sort of the act, two through five, Jesus commits the act, does the act of washing their feet. What I'd never noticed until, um, really, I think this week, although I did preach this passage before, so I don't know what I was thinking, um, was uh, that the first interpretation of it is a theological interpretation. From 6 until 11, they're talking about what does it mean, this act, in a way in which, what does it mean to be washed and welcomed and touched by God? In 12 through 15, it becomes an ethical model for the church. It becomes something that we are to do. Now, what I think is interesting is that, at least for me, I only pretty much remember the ethical model, which is a terrible way to have the gospel be. It's that Christ who does something for us so that we can do it for others. 
What Jesus doesn't model for us is this idea of I'm commanding you into places and a call in which I haven't lived. And I think that's different. Most of us have had bosses or managers at some point who love to command and ask their workers to do things that they would not do themselves. Or landlords. In my experience, it was landlords that always were like, go do this. And I'm like, have you ever done that? They're like, no, figure it out. I was like, okay, I will. This will go terribly. So I call my friends who go to church with me. And then they say, anyways, um, the, uh, uh, Jesus, if we begin to pray, place the ethical before the theological, and I mean that in the God-meaning way, that, that God is doing something for us, we can begin to severely mess up the gospel. Because the gospel becomes this demand upon which us, in which we're called to achieve and always do and be, with no hope that somebody else has come to us, has touched us, has modeled us, and done it for us. And so properly, I think John's gospel, and there are other stories too, where the, um, the explanation that first comes first is one in which God is doing something for us. And after we've received what God has done for us, we can do that for others. Um, again, it's, it's easy, I think, for us just to remember the ethical is that we're supposed to love people like Christ loved people, um, and the emphasis is not on like Christ loved people. The emphasis is, buck up, you need to love somebody who you don't want to love, rather than Christ loved you when you were unlovable, and you can extend that to someone else. What I wanted to say is, what Jamie finished with is that command that you should love one another. And this is one of the early, in John's gospel, it's, it's this way in which the community of faith will shine forth in its concern and care within its walls. I was talking to a friend this week, and I was talking about how it feels like we live in a world come of age in Christianity. And what I mean by that is we live in a world that says, all the goodness that's in the Gospels of love and care for the least of these and um, uh, justice and um, this sort of society has bled into the world so much, so much so that even Christ non-Christians will say to Christians, you know, don't you know you're not supposed to judge? I'm taking a verse out of context. We did it first, but <laughs> the world does it as well. Um, or... Um, uh, that you're supposed to love the world, this, that, and the other. But I think it's time, and it might be wise for the church, to reclaim its love for each other as disciples. And Jesus does that here at the beginning of the passage, too, is, is having those whom he loved near him. Many people would say, well, doesn't he love the whole world? And it's true that said, for God so loved the world. But there's this proximity, this, this thing in which loving the particular is something in which we're called to. Now, Jonathan Franzen, who I, I quote often, is a non-Christian writer, but, uh, and he's grumpy. So for some reason, the Audubon Society, Jonathan Franzen is a birder, um, which he says always, I'm aware that that's a nerdy thing to be a part of. And I did say that once at a church full of birders, and they were like, tell us why it's nerdy. I was like, you guys don't know? Um, I needed to get out of there fast. Anyways... Um, the Audubon Society had taken a quote from Jonathan Franzen without his permission, put on a flyer about how climate change was, was the greatest thing. 
coming for birds and that they needed to do something about it. And again, he's not a, he's a grumpy guy, so he wasn't happy about the quote being taken out of context. But what he wrote a letter back or an article back was that there's a, uh, the football stadium in Minnesota, they were putting up a type of glass that was likely to kill like thousands of birds every year. And people in Minnesota, <laughs> there's uh, lots of birds. Do you guys see the birds get hit? Yeah. Well, they went through with it. Apparently, friends that did not have the power to get them to put the other glass in. Oh, they did change it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, his point was, um, uh, so he's right, that's a benefit for him, was that it, the imminent threat of climate change, um, and this isn't a political thing, it was that they couldn't love the particular to care for the thousands of birds that would hit the side of the Minnesota fo uh, Vikings football stadium was seen as just a blip because there was a greater threat coming. So the essay he writes is really about what does it mean to love the particular? Yes, challenges are coming for the world, and you can always use some other thing to say, I don't need to love the thing closest to me. America, or Jesus, talks about loving our neighbor, and so often we think our neighbor isn't the least of these in which we can serve, and yet that's just an excuse to not love the particular thing that is near to us. The church, I think, today, largely because um, we've forgotten it, is called back into that spot I think Jesus speaks of at the end of this passage. It's to learn to love each other again. And there's a lot of ways in which that's harder because we know each other. Um, it's, uh, it's easier to love that which is further away out there. Um, it's easier to love something in distance from us. Uh, Stanley Harwas, many of you know who I love, in his wedding sermons where they read 1 Corinthians 13, will often say Christians are required to love each other even if they're married. Um, uh, that we are required to love in those spaces as well. So much easier it is to say, the victim someplace else, some far away, will be the object of my love because I don't have to know them. So for Defiance Church, for our community, this is just jumping to the end. We'll walk through the, the foot washing next. Um, to say that what does it mean to love the particular? First, within our walls, not at the negation of the world. And second, and this is where I think if we're going to take the commands of Luke um, and that love your neighbor as yourself, that second commandment passage seriously, our actual neighbors, the actual people who inhabit the Roaring Fork Valley, to be called into that. But let's jump into the main passage for today, this, this foot washing that takes place on that Passover festival, which is this sort of retelling of the gospel in, in action. He's going to show us the gospel in action before he goes to the cross. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew, and this, um, I can put the text up here too. Um, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. First off is worth noticing is that Jesus knows what's going to happen. The passage in which Jesus, Jamie read for us, where he quotes the, the psalmist to say, this is so that you know that this was supposed to be fulfilled. What, what is happening in this scene is not like 
mission of Jesus went awry and humans thwarted it. It is the mission of Jesus that is being played out. Jesus does not go to the cross because we were smarter or we outwitted God or anything like that. But God and Jesus knew that this was the time. This was something that was planned out. Thou art come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. What this next section we talked about just briefly ago was the next section is going to be about how, if he is going to the Father, will the disciples remain in touch with him? We're going to hear about the gift of the Spirit and the ways in which he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what does it mean to abide in him? Does it mean to abide in this one as he goes to the Father? There's a space open up for us. And have his loved his own who were in the world. As he loved these particular people. Again, so often I'm like, Jesus really loves everybody. And John's like, you disciples, you church gathered here, having loved you, those called out of the world, the church, he will love you to the end. And the end is a phrase, a Greek phrase, um, telos, which has this to the finish, to the fullest. You'll see different translations. I don't know, Shelly, you're looking in the NLT right now, guilty. Uh, What does it say at the the end of this verse? Uh, You can tell me when you get to it, but it's this fullness thing. It's actually similar to the word that he'll say from the cross, it is finished. He loves them until the finish, that this is the ways in which... Um, And so in English, we'll have it. David, did you find it already? Nope, okay. I'll keep going. (laughs) I should just bring my own. That's the moral of the story. Um, But he's loved his own until this point. He's loved until here. In the next scene, the meal was in progress, which is a weird time to wash people's feet in the ancient Near East. Normally, you would wash the feet when they came into the house. Washing when the meal's in progress, I believe, shows this sort of way in which um, Jesus is showing his unique care of a message he wants them to take away. If Christ had done the ritual washing on the entry into the house, it would have shown that Christ does the ritual washing. But this different way of doing it during the meal shows something else. It shows that this is a particular lesson that he wants them to learn. It's at a point in which it normally wouldn't be. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Um, I did miss this last week, is that last week Jesus, in one of his few references to the devil in the book of John, says that the prince of the world needs to be pushed out. John contains no exorcisms. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have several exorcisms within them. John contains none. And one of the theories on why that is is because the exorcism in which Jesus is trying to achieve through Mark's theological gospel is an exorcism of the whole world. Any particular exorcism would have missed that point. It would have, it would have diminished the point in which he is saying it's not just one demon here and there throughout um, the Judean region that I'm casting out. It's a demon that's full of the whole world that needs to be pushed out by what Jesus is doing. So here, that, that character who just referred to takes, is taking the place in Judas's life so that these things might be fulfilled is sort of the way it happens. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. 
Philippians 2 that Brian read for us, right? The, that being in the form of God, he emptied himself. Knowing who he was, where he's from, the power he had, he magically washed everybody's feet without having to get up. It's not what happens. He, he fixed everything without going to the cross. He decided what happens is, is that God at this moment gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing, and wraps a towel around his waist to wash and serve those gathered there. Jesus, in this instance, is, is at this meal, is often the host of this meal, as much as he is awesome often, and this is hard for us to grasp, the slave. In Jewish culture, the foot washing um, was not fit for any of their Jew, and you could have slaves do it um, on occasion. And then there are stories of rabbis who were well-respected of their disciples, I think, trying to show off. Peter will have this problem, too, um, washing their rabbi's feet to show how lowly they are in comparison to him. Jesus, knowing who he is from the Father, with all the power that comes with that, and that he had come from God, and that he is returning to the Godhead, gets up and puts a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. At this moment, Christ becomes one who serves in that way. He empties himself, taking on the form of a slave. In the Philippians reading, and this is, the gospel has this sort of V-shape to it. This is where this is a good picture of the gospel, is, is in the moment of coming down to the lowest, Jesus is then also raised up to the highest. It's got a sharp downward movement, and it has a sharp upward movement in the glorification, the resurrection that comes after. Jesus becomes the one who does this act. Now, I, this picture, I think, is a picture of the gospel, and we're going to get an explanation on why that is, both ethically and theologically, but it is in itself a complete story. I mean, you could turn this over inside yourself over and over again and ask yourself, what does this mean? We're given an example of what does it mean to, to question that. Simon Peter, um, who stands up and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Are you really going to do this to me? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. Just this um, common thing, I think, in the gospel is so many people don't realize what's going on. But in light of the resurrection, new light is cast upon so many of the other scenes. You don't understand this now, but you will. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. This is where I think, going back to that world come of age in Christianity they suggested, is we're fine. I don't need a washing. I don't need help. I can do it myself. Or, no, you're so much above me that I refuse to come this critical distance. I think that perhaps might be the saddest, which is something I think is Peter isn't obtuse because he's obtuse. He's obtuse because we're obtuse. Um, He's saying the things that we also feel. If Christ is really this way, surely I will not let him wash my feet to keep him clean. 
I don't think we're ever aware if we're protecting our own self from the holiness being near us or if we're actually just scared, if we're actually just rejecting, if we actually don't want that cleaning because with that cleaning comes that we have now been touched by God and we belong to a new space. I think you could think through your own life about this idea in many different ways. Is, is What does it mean to say at this moment in which goodness and life and light and holiness has come near to me no, don't wash my feet. I mean, again, you could say he's much above us, but I think we're barely into questioning ourselves if we think, I'm just trying to protect Jesus. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless I'm able to touch you, unless I'm able to serve you, Unless I'm able to get at your feet. There's another way of translating this, that there's no inheritance in me. You won't be able to belong to me. You won't abide with me. You won't be in that spot. So often, I think, it's, it's, um, that rejection comes with that. There's the quote on the back of the bulletin. This was, um, I get the Niebuhr brothers confused. Is, is it Richard on the back of the bulletin? Richard. Uh, there's Reinhold, too. Uh, Richard, dealing with the um, liberal theology, which is not political statement, the liberal theology of the early 1900s said, what they found they preferred was a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Our optimism, no, you won't wash me. No, the cross is not necessary. No, this movement away from that. It's a common thing, going back to Niebuhr's fight with the liberals of his time, there's a common thing in certain hymnal discussions today to remove the language of the cross and the bloody and the substitutionary, and it's just like this all over again. Don't wash me. Christ's sacrifice doesn't need to be named as individually for me. I mean, often, again, there's, there's some real, I think, things behind this. But again, I don't think we're aware of what's our real problem. The two hymns we sing today often would be edited or taken out of, of modern hymnals. The, um, let's see, uh, Before the Throne and um, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, both those, yeah. Um, offensive. And it is offensive. <laughs> it, I will wash your feet, no thanks, um, uh, then you will have no part of me. Simon then says, then Lord, not wash my feet, but my head as well, wash my whole body. This, I think, is a great challenge for us because the gospel, um, there's lots you can read into this, but going through Paul's letters and other part, seems like the New Testament and the Old Testament is, has this way of sort of tamping down zealotry, which is odd, because we tend to be like, hey, if you can be the most pious, spokenly zealous person in a Christian room, we're all like, I guess he should be in charge. Um, uh, and then we also set these people up to fail and burn, because it's very hard to do that and be it all the time. It's weird that the gospel has this strange humanist streak for the Christian believer to say, you're here, bring it down to here. Because if you're here, you can sustain for the long haul. God will bring us to higher places. That's 
I think, what part of the message is. We will get heightened with God, but it's because it is with God. Hey, if you're going to do my feet, you better do the whole thing. Hey, if we're going to go on missions, what if we just don't bring sleeping bags so that we can be intimately related to the poor? This stuff happens, and if it's from God, so be it. We will go with that, but oftentimes it's just this, like, who can model the most zealous way of being? Paul, the Old Testament, and even Jesus seems to say, look, Peter, those who have a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. If you're clean, though not every one of you, again, referring to Judas, is that that you have already been through your ritual relationship with me, washing the feet and assuming the Last Supper is happening at this meal before. Believe into what I've done for you. Believe that I'm doing what I said. This is the... Um, call in which he has. And, and what I think comes with this is, is a teaching from um, Marion Meyer Thompson, who, when asked to summarize the gospel, and she's a scholar in John's gospel, says, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Summarizing the gospel in six words, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Wash me. Make it about me. Do this thing grander. God is doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. And it's for the Christian to trust into the reality of that, to believe into that. Um, I skipped. We'll finish with this one. Uh, When he finished washing their feet, he put on their clothes. And what he does now is he gives them a new way of being as, as disciples. Um, Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked. So we had the theological interpretation, that belonging to Jesus, that God is doing for us so that we can remain in him and be in him, to have an inheritance in his life. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that is what I am. Now that I'm your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You should wash one another's feet. I had set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who have sent them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now having received that which we cannot do for ourselves, Christ calls the community of faith, the disciples, to be able to do that for one another. To serve one another. Because I think in our world and in the ancient Near East, I think, there's this threat in which serving others is a threat. You make yourself vulnerable to being taken advantage of. You make yourself um, uh, subservient. You lower yourself. Isn't that scary? In our closest human relationships, maybe this is just me, But there's been times in which I could say, I could do that thing for this person. But if I did, what would happen to my dignity? What would happen to my worth? That type of logic, while governing the world, which he'll talk about later, is not meant to be for the believer. Because if the one who is teacher and Lord the one who is returning to God, is capable of doing that without feeling threatened or diminished in his own capacity. How much more so can we move into that gap 
And be those willing to serve. Be those willing to move in that spot. Because if there was no threat for him in that, then surely there is no threat for us as we go to that space as well. And that, I think, is where the ethical becomes greater. Because it's actually a, a fierce thing in the world. I think so often when I've been told, you know, we should serve one another as this, that, and the other, it becomes sort of this um, uh, doing to others, the overstated things that we always are heard, golden rule and stuff like that. But if you say that we know the dangers that are posed in serving somebody else, and yet we know somebody else higher than us, we call teacher and Lord, who descended to that spot, then the freedom exists for us to move there as well. Someone else has paved that path before us. So too it is the God who does things that we are enabled to do for ourselves. Causes us in small ways. He doesn't say, so you too should go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He says, so that you too can serve and wash each other's feet. Disciples end this story with this question of where are you going? And that's where we'll pick up next Sunday. Let us pray. God, you have given us in picture, in action, a story of what it means that you descend from on high, take up residency in the world, come as one sent from God, but lower yourself to the point of washing the disciples' feet of touching us and washing us, of being near to those who you love and washing and making them clean. You came to take away the sin, the stain of the world. So too, in washing us, you take that away from us. You do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then in a small way, you call us in to serving each other again. For no command you have given us that we should love one another. Strengthen us as your people to be a people who love one another here and can love those nearest to us and our neighbors and our children and our coworkers and our spouses and our friends so that perhaps people may see what's behind all that. The one who in a meal with his friends being the highest among them, knelt down and washed their feet. I ask all this in your name, you who live and reign with the Father and Spirit. Amen.